Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Uh, Acts chapter 9. Uh, we are um, slowly making our way through the book of Acts. Um, it's our practice normally to stand when we read God's Word, but we're reading 31 verses. Um, so I will grant you the freedom to remain seated. I hear God's word, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but not seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. That's not the same Ananias who died with Sophia several chapters ago. Just make that distinction. Uh, and he said, here I uh, And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And there, he, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, to, sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God, and all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would teach us. Uh, Use this Your Word to change us, to conform us uh, into the image of Christ, uh, to root out sin in our lives and to grow us in love for Christ, love for Your Word, and in holiness and in usefulness in Your kingdom. And we pray all of this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. I kind of wish we weren't right in the middle of of Advent when you get to Acts 9 uh, because you, you really you read Acts 9 and you really want to sing Amazing Grace. You just you're like this the song just fits right here with this chapter and it fits perfectly. It fits of course because what the song Amazing Grace sings is exactly Saul's experience. But there's another reason I wish we weren't singing Christmas songs and instead we're, we're Advent songs and we're, we're instead could sing um, uh, Amazing Grace. And that is this. The author of Amazing Grace was a man named John Newton. Uh, John Newton, as he was dying, wrote the words that he wanted on his tombstone. And he wrote this. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith He had long labored to destroy. I'm going to use that outline, that quote, as the outline for the sermon. I wish I'd thought of this soon enough to get it printed in your bulletins and it'd be easier for you to follow, but it's not, so bear with me. Newton's story is Saul's story. Newton's picture of conversion is Saul's experience of his own conversion here in Acts 9. Notice, first of all, Saul was an infidel. Look at verse 1. There's this word in Acts 9 verse 1 that you need to recognize. It's the word still. What that means is that this is not the first time we've met Saul. We saw him at the end of chapter 7. When Stephen was being stoned, Saul was the guy working the coat closet. He was the guy that would take your coat and give you the little check thing so that after you got done throwing stones at Stephen, you could come back and give him your claim ticket and take your coat. He was guarding the coats at the end of chapter 7 when Stephen was being stoned. And he, we're told, he gave approval to the stoning. And we've seen him already breathing out threats against the church, persecuting the church in Jerusalem back at the beginning of chapter 8 and causing many of the believers to scatter, to leave Jerusalem altogether. And Saul, you notice here at the beginning of chapter 9, is still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It wasn't enough for him to see them leave Jerusalem. It wasn't enough for him to sort of drive Christians out of Jerusalem. Once there weren't enough left to arrest in Jerusalem, he went to the chief priest and said, look, would you write me a letter of recommendation 
A letter that says, I have permission to go to Damascus, to go to the synagogues there, find Christians and arrest them and bring them back here for trial, to be thrown in jail, to be murdered for whatever aim, for whatever purpose. And so he got that letter and he started traveling to Jerusalem. I mean, to Damascus from Jerusalem. I find it interesting that I mean, that Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't really spill a whole lot of ink on Saul at this point. You get two verses. You get basically two or three sentences. Saul was doing this. He got a letter from the chief priest and he started on his way to Damascus. The old Saul gets just a couple of sentences here in Acts 9. Now, we get his... We get twice more later in Acts, uh, we'll get the same account, the repeated account of his conversion uh, as he retells, the, as Saul, as Paul retells the story uh, before other leaders and other contexts. There's not a lot of ink spilled on that. It's like Luke is eager to get on beyond the old Saul who was still breathing out threats against the church. Evil, villainous, murderous. Saul was an infidel. But he's an infidel who, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice what happens in verses 3 and three to 5. Saul is on his way to Damascus. He's holding a letter that allows him to arrest followers of the way. That's what Christians were called at the time. And out of nowhere, again, there's another word in verse 3. So the word still in verse 1, there's a word in verse 3 that you need to recognize. It's the word suddenly. Saul is looking for Christians to kill them. He's looking for Christians to arrest them. And suddenly out of nowhere, as he's making this journey to Damascus, he's suddenly blinded by this bright light and has this this interaction with Jesus. There's no way to argue Saul is looking for Jesus because he wants to be saved. There's no way to say Saul was trying to find the true religion and somebody introduced him to Jesus. There's no way to say that Saul was was out trying to learn from other Christians and hear what they had to say so that he might understand the gospel better. He's on the way to kill them. And Jesus stops him dead in his tracks. God in his sovereign mercy appears out of nowhere literally to Saul. And Saul is brought to saving faith by Christ, by God's sovereign mercy. He didn't earn it. He wasn't good enough. It wasn't his obedience. It wasn't his good looks. It wasn't his abilities. It wasn't his any other. Th- I mean, there was nothing he could bring. That he couldn't say, well, but if maybe God grades on a curve 
And if I just do better than the rest of the people around me, then I'll be okay. Or maybe God grades on a scale. And if I can just outweigh my bad deeds with my good deeds, then I'll be okay. He was doing the exact opposite. He's out to arrest and kill Christians. Why? Because he's convinced it's the wrong truth. It's the wrong faith. It's that Jesus is still dead. He thinks Jesus is still in the tomb. He doesn't believe in a resurrection. And yet, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ, in His sovereign mercy and grace, grabbed hold of Saul's heart and changed it and brought him to saving faith in Christ. There's a hymn. I don't know if we've ever sung it, um, but there's a hymn and and we don't know who the author is. It's not attributed to a a person, a name. Uh, But the, the first verse goes like this. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. The hymn writer recognizes, even after coming to faith in Christ, that, oh, actually, as it turns out, you were pursuing me all along. You changed me all along. Our salvation is all of God's grace. And that's the picture here in Acts 9. Saul is on his way to do the exact exact opposite of come to saving faith in Christ. And yet, Christ in His sovereign mercy brings him to a place of repentance and trust in the Gospel. But did you notice Jesus' question in verse 4? Why are you persecuting, the pronoun matters, me? Now hold on, okay. Put yourself in Saul's shoes for a second and ignore the fact that you've just been blinded by a light and heard a voice from someone you can't see. Leave that aside if you can for just a second. Who's me in in Saul's mind? Saul, Paul, same guy, Hebrew name, Greek name. God doesn't change his name. It's just just a Greek and Hebrew versions of the same guy. So thus the interchange. Saul's persecuting Christians. He thinks Jesus is in a tomb somewhere. He's not persecuting Jesus. He expects the me not to be Jesus, but one of the believers in Damascus who decided he would, I don't know, gather up the gumption to go face Saul on the street. You and I need to understand... That as Saul persecutes believers, he's persecuting Jesus. When you and I face persecution on account of our faith in Christ, Jesus is being persecuted. You are so united to Him. He so identifies with His people that our persecution is His. Our mistreatment is His mistreatment. 
Saul's going to write this. Go home this afternoon and read Ephesians 1. Here's your, here's your Lord's Day afternoon assignment. Read Ephesians 1 this afternoon. And count, mark, all the in hymns that Paul writes in Ephesians 1. Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Died with Him. Buried with Him. Raised with Him. Seated with Him in the heavenly places. Don't, don't ignore the, the depth, the weight, the strength of this, this doctrine of our union with Christ. Because we are so, because we're united with Him, we've died with Him, we've been raised with Him, and when we are mistreated on account of Christ, He's mistreated too. So that Jesus can say, hey Saul, you know the Christians you're arresting and throwing in prison? You know the Christians you set out to kill? You're persecuting me. You're not persecuting just mere people. You're persecuting me and my people. Believer, be comforted by that. Jesus doesn't identify with you from some great distance. He identifies with you and what you're going through. Saul's an infidel who by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, third, preserved, restored, and pardoned. Conversion always involves a change of the mind and a change of the will. And you get both of those here in Saul's uh, conversion, the story of Saul coming to saving faith. It always involves uh, the old self believing that they're recognizing that the old man, the old self, the old me was believing something wrong. And that now I've been brought to the truth of the gospel. It involves a, a change of, of lifestyle that means serving me versus serving Christ. A change of the will. Having a new master. Look down at verses 11 and 12. Ananias, Jesus appears to Ananias in, in, in this vision. And he says, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to this house on Straight Street, Judas's house. There's a guy there. His name is Saul. Uh, he knows you're coming. He's praying. He's already seen a vision that you're going to be there. Uh, and when you get there, lay hands on him and you'll be giving, giving him his sight back. You can understand Ananias' response in verse 13. Like, I have this notion that he said it really slowly, really hesitantly. I mean, I... Jesus? Hold on a second. Did I, did I hear you right? Are you, are you sure you've got your facts straight? Because this guy, Saul, he's carrying a letter to persecute Christians. He wants to arrest us. I'm not sure. I mean, like, that's what he was doing in Jerusalem. And he's on his way here to do that now. And you want me to go to him. You, you, you sure? You got the right guy. So that would have been my response. A lot more hesitation. A lot more, I don't know about all this. A lot of, 
of I'm just not sure that this is actually the right thing to do, the right place to go. You can understand his confusion, his concern, his hesitation. You can understand his question. Jesus, I've heard about this guy and the evil he's done, and he's here to do the same thing. Notice how Jesus comforts Ananias in verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument. The doctrine of God's divine sovereign election is intended to comfort Ananias. The doctrine you and I find most divisive, confusing, and and anger-inducing is actually what Jesus uses here in this passage to bring comfort to Ananias. It's okay, Ananias. I've chosen him for something. I've appointed him to come to saving faith and to be used as an instrument to take the gospel to kings, to Gentiles, to the Jews, to all kinds of people. In other words, Jesus essentially responds with Ananias, it's okay. He's different now. The gospel changes us. It gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new will, a new loves. It it changes our master. It changes the the way we treat others, the way we love others, the way we interact with other people. It it affects the the relationships we have with other people. It it means now we're under the, the guidance and lordship and authority of Christ by His Word rather than under our own authority. Ananias, he's not the same person you heard about a few days ago. And then in verse 17, Ananias is there and he lays hands on him and these scales fall off of his eyes and he receives his sight and his conversion is exactly John Newton's song. If only we could sing Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. Saul was blinded by his sin and then blinded by the light of the gospel of Christ and then blinded by these scales until Ananias came and laid hands on him and they fell off and he could see. He could see the truth of the gospel. He could respond in faith. He was blinded by his sin, now sees... The truth of Scripture. He sees that Christ is the fulfillment of all that that the Old Testament anticipated. That Christ is the Messiah promised from Genesis 3.16 onward. What made Saul different? It was the mercy of Christ. Preserved. Restored. Pardoned. And then down in verses 20 to 22... Saul stayed in Damascus and he's in the synagogues preaching Jesus. The the very gospel he had sought to destroy. The people there were so surprised by what they heard. You can again, you can almost imagine them going, that, that's that's Saul, right? I mean, that's the guy that came from Jerusalem with the letter. He's talking about Jesus. You can hear their shock. You can hear their confusion. Isn't this the one who came for the purpose of 
to bring us believers bound before the chief priests? But he's proclaiming Christ. He's showing how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Truth is, he's now not the guy that left Jerusalem with a letter in his hand to destroy Christians, to put to death the church. He's not that person. He's now new. And notice the infidel was pardoned by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then finally appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. You notice in verse 15, Ananias was afraid to go visit with him. Jesus communicates that, uh, that it's safe uh, for Ananias to go to Saul. Why? Because not just is he, is he chosen, but he's a chosen instrument to take the gospel to other people. He's going to be taking the gospel before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's appointed to proclaim Christ in all these different venues. And before the chapter is over, he's doing it. The synagogues in Damascus, and when the Jews there decided to kill him, uh, the, the, the disciples let him down out of a window and he goes to Jerusalem. And when the Hellenists there decided to kill him, uh, the, the apostles sent him elsewhere. Just think of how much of the New Testament comes out of Paul's pen. Think of the truth, uh, the truths of, of Scripture that we know and understand and, and church government that all come out of the pen that Paul held in his hand. Okay, sure, had it not been for Paul, had it not been for Saul, it would have been someone else because... Christ and His sovereignty wanted those things recorded. But that's just the point. He was the chosen, appointed instrument to be used by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He confounded the Jews in Damascus, verse 22. He argued with the Greeks, verse 29. And that put his life in danger. And before the chapter is even over, we see him doing exactly what he was appointed to do. To proclaim the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles. Saul was an infidel who by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was pardoned and appointed to preach the very gospel he had sought to destroy. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage. The first is this. If you're here this morning trusting in some other hope for your salvation other than Jesus, that hope will fail you. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which we might be saved. It's Christ and Him alone. Run to Him. And you argue, oh, but hold on, I'm not good enough. I've got to clean some things up first. Let me take care of some some, you know, issues in my life. Saul is saved in the middle of a trip to murder people. 
He can save you. You don't clean it up first. You run to the cross. You there find forgiveness. And He cleans you up. A second application. I can't tell you how many times um, I've heard people actually regret that they don't have a Damascus Road conversion experience like Saul. You actually hear people say, I mean, I don't really have this, you know, wild, woolly, crazy lifestyle. I was a murdering, drug-dealing, womanizing, thieving, stealing, and then all of a sudden, God saved me. I hear people actually regret that that's not their story. Let me encourage you. One man's story is not intended to be every man's story. Just because this is Saul's life, just just because this is Saul's conversion experience, doesn't mean that's the model. Because Timothy, Paul's protege, was raised in a household of faith, taught by his mom and his grandmother. Don't let this chapter make you think you have the wrong kind of conversion experience. Because the reality is, everyone who's converted has a change of mind and a change of will. We leave a lie to turn to the truth of the gospel. We leave a desire to worship and serve self to come under the lordship and authority of Christ. Don't begrudge, don't regret your testimony or your child's testimony. You hear parents do that as well. A third application, sort of along uh, those same lines. It's, it's funny to me, it's, I guess it's a little odd to me that Saul has become the model in this passage. That Saul's conversion experience is somehow the one that we think is supposed to be the model conversion experience. There are two other people in this passage that God appointed for other tasks. The guy Ananias, this is all we know about him. He's nowhere before Acts 9, and he's nowhere after Acts 9. And we go, oh, but if only I could be like Paul. Somebody needs to be Ananias. Is God calling you to be an Ananias and not a Paul? Is He calling you to to be the one who who sort of comes and lays hands on Saul so that he might receive his sight and, and encourage him on his way and then fade off into oblivion? While someone else writes the majority of the New Testament and takes the gospel all over the Mediterranean Sea, somebody's got to be Ananias, and that's okay. Somebody's got to be Barnabas. I didn't even point out the fact that when Saul got to Jerusalem, the disciples there are like, no, no, this Barnabas knew Saul's story grabbed Saul by the hand, takes him to the disciples and said, it's okay, he's new. Now Barnabas we see more of throughout the New Testament. But always as an encourager, as the, as the, as the Sam Gamgee of the story. Encouraging Saul, Paul in his ministry. And fourth, let me make this one final application. Notice from the very beginning of Saul's conversion. 
Jesus doesn't come to save you and make you leave you on an island. Your relationship with Christ isn't about you and Jesus alone. Saul, from the very beginning, is connected to the church. He's connected to the disciples. He's connected to Ananias who walks in and says, Brother Saul, you need the household of faith. We need each other. We, we need to be praying with and for each other and loving each other and caring for each other and providing for each other and encouraging each other and challenging one another and, and admonishing each other. We need the body. You can't have the head without also having the body. And that's Saul's experience even from the very beginning. Everywhere he goes, he's with God's people. He needs the church. Let's pray. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank You that our salvation is all of grace. It's not by our merit. It's not by our works. It's not by our duty. It's not by what we do. It's not grounded in our um, goodness or merit in any way. That we have this example of a man who, who was set out to destroy the church and in a moment, in an instant, you and in your sovereign mercy reached out to him and changed him and brought him to saving faith in Christ. Would you use us to reach others with the gospel of Christ? Would you use us, some perhaps, to be more like Saul who are are widely, broadly proclaiming the gospel. Others like Ananias and Barnabas, encouraging, serving, loving. Father, we pray that we would be a people who takes the gospel of Christ to a lost, blind world that you might find them and give them sight. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.